Thanks for checking out the GMH podcast here on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. We get an update on the sewage leak into Hamilton Harbor. Masks coming back to some Hamilton schools. Canada impressed in its 2022 World Cup debut. You may have space rocks in your yard. The Ontario NDP leadership race isn't much of one at this point, And you can donate your car to help fund important research. Find out how by listening to the GMH podcast now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We have some good news to report. Construction crews have stopped this leak of sewage into the Hamilton Harbor, which had been going on since 1996. We got the breaking news uh, on Tuesday. Uh, Nick Winters, the director of Hamilton Water, joined us yesterday, and he is back on the show right now. Nick Winters, the director of Hamilton Water with the city of Hamilton. Nick, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. Thanks very much for having me back. Uh, thanks for coming back. So the, the, leak has been, the leak has been fixed. Tell us about the work that was done uh, yesterday. It has, yeah. So our, our crews worked on it uh, all day yesterday, uh, and what they did was they connected uh, two sewers together uh, and sealed off this leak. Um, that work was completed around 9.30 last night, so as of that, uh, as of that time, uh, all the sewage was going where it should be, uh, which is down to the Woodward Wastewater Treatment Plant. And it sounds like we all got a, uh, a pretty good glimpse of how this had gone unnoticed for so long. This pipe was not in plain view. Yeah, that's correct. This is something that's, uh, that's. I mean, it's below grade, as is most of our infrastructure. Uh, you would have had to open a, a maintenance chamber in order to be able to see it. And then it really would have taken someone with a, a good understanding of how our wastewater collection system works to identify uh, that something was unusual, even if, if someone was to open that chamber. So what measures are now being taken with similar wastewater pipes across the city? Is there going to be an, an inventory, so to speak, on how each one is doing? So that's something that we're going to have to look into. We do have an inventory of all the known areas where uh, something like this could occur, and, and we, inspect those, uh, we expect those locations on a very frequent basis to make sure that there's nothing unusual happening. In this location, there shouldn't have been uh, a discharge like this, so what we need to consider... Uh, is what inspection program uh, makes sense, likely from a risk-based perspective, you know, sewer proximities and things like that. Um, how quickly can we get that done and, and what are the costs and resource needs? And that's something that uh, we'll be talking about with City Council uh, over the coming days. Um, and certainly it's something, you know, this is, it's moved quickly over the past uh, day and a half. Uh, certainly, we've turned our minds to where do we need to improve. So this was really a, uh, an unknown location. Could there potentially be more of them out there? Unfortunately, I can't say that there aren't. Um, you know, this is something that never should have happened. Uh, and if it happened in one location, uh, it's reasonable to think that it could have happened in another. Um, and that's what we need to be cautious of. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Nick Winters, the director of Hamilton Water with the City of Hamilton, talking about this sewage leak that has now been corrected, uh, that uh, is no longer leaking into the Hamilton Harbour. When will you know how much sewage, in fact, went into the harbour? So we're working on that presently. I actually expect to get an update on it this afternoon. Uh, there's a few different ways to, to figure this out, and, and what my team has been doing is they've been pulling all the water meter data for the properties that are connected to these sewer pipes. Uh, we're going to look at that this, at this, at that, excuse me, this afternoon to see what story it tells. Um, we're hopeful for something uh, by Monday at the latest. This being an environmental mishap, is the Ministry of Environment now involved? 
Yes, they were involved immediately. Uh, that's our obligation uh, under law is to report spills, uh, which we did uh, around 12.20 p.m. on, on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, the Ministry of the Environment, uh, they did have an inspector on site on Tuesday as well, and we've had a few conversations with their local uh, district office about this. Uh, we're expecting certainly to hear more from them in the future. And you also had an update yesterday on the number of properties that had unknowingly been contributing to this lake, and that is much lower than initially thought. Yeah, we did, and, and I don't want to confuse anybody, so I'll try and make this easy. There are 50, 50 properties um, within this area. Out of those 50 properties, 39 of them have buildings on them. Um, so the, the number of, of properties that we're actually discharging to this sewer pipe is, is 39. Nick, we appreciate the update. Thanks for coming on air with us once again, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Rick. That is Nick Winters, the director of Hamilton Water with the City of Hamilton. So good news that the leak has been stopped. Bad news is there might be some other unknown locations where these types of leaks are still occurring. Uh, it's, uh, you know, this is almost like whack-a-mole. Where's the next pipe? Oh, it's here, there, and everywhere. Uh, let's hope that's not the case, but uh, there's there's some heavy lifting to do, I'm sure. And the cost of analyzing where all these pipes are has got to be astronomical. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we know that uh, COVID-19 RSV influenza cases are overwhelming Ontario hospitals. We're seeing right here in Hamilton with Mac Kids Hospitals uh, being well over capacity in terms of pediatric patients with one or maybe multiple um, illnesses in this regard in hospital and uh, trying to get a lot better. So with that in mind... It may not come as much of a surprise that the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board is now asking students and staff to wear masks in schools. Maria Felix Miller is a trustee for Ward 3 with the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Maria, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, why the masking in schools? I know it's not a mandate. Why are we taking this step here in, in local public schools? Um, so I think the reality is, is, as you've captured in your introduction, is we are seeing an overwhelming number of very young children with um, multiple viruses. Uh, our emergency rooms are at uh, capacity. I believe the data that was shared Monday night at our, at our inaugural board was um, that typically McMaster Hospital runs at about 110% capacity in pediatric beds. Um, and we're currently seeing levels of about 140 and 150%. Um, so that's a very scary number for parents. Uh, we all know, we've all been hearing the anecdotes about parents um, going to multiple pharmacies, multiple locations to try to secure Tylenol in order to uh, treat and support their sick kids at their homes and, and prevent having to go into urgent care um, or into the emergency room because things are, are quite dire. Um, so we trustees at the HWDSB um, have really tried to, you know, take a supportive approach, take a compassionate approach that helps protect our vulnerable populations. And, you know, what is that? That is our disabled students, um, our special needs students, our uh, members of the community that are immunocompromised. Uh, we feel a responsibility being the largest public school board in the city, um, excuse me, the largest school board in the city, we feel a responsibility to make sure that our buildings are as safe as possible, um, and then masking is one layer of that. How long will this masking recommendation, at least at this point, be in effect? So currently the direction is until further direction. 
Um, so Hamilton Public Health, our local public health unit, has said that right now they are strongly recommending masks in crowded uh indoor scenarios and we feel that this motion is in line with that direction and the reality is is we don't know we don't know until we see um our health care um relieved of the current crisis our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml is maria felix miller trustee for ward three with the hamilton wentworth district school board we're talking about masking in school this again as i mentioned not a mask mandate but are there indicators or are there benchmarks that would lead to a mandate? So currently we don't, we don't have um, a provincial order to mandate masks. Uh, our approach right now is to strongly encourage and to, to explicitly ask our staff and our students. Um, this masking is specifically for indoor um, scenarios and falls in line with the Hamilton Public Health recommendation that indoor crowded areas, um, you know, everyone should be masking right now to help stop the spread of the variety of viruses that we've discussed already. So would the board need approval from the public health unit to institute a mandate or would that come from the province? So the province as of now has said that local public health units have, uh, I believe it's section 22, so that power would lie there. Um, So if Hamilton Public Health decided to, they could invoke section 22 and actually create a mandate for, for local cities. So in our case, it would be Hamilton Public Health and I would suspect that we would see um, that for for education and then municipal buildings. What kind of uh, input and and what kind of reaction have you already received from parents and students? Uh, So we've actually seen a significant amount of parents reach out uh, in favor of a mandate. Um, I received a email yesterday from a a parent in Dundas who quite honestly said it is getting um, almost impossible to send my immunocompromised child to schools. Um, so that's that's what we're hearing. We also have been hearing the other side that the parents will not be complying, um, that their students or excuse me, their their children will not be wearing masks. Um, and the reality is, we've always had a no barrier exemption. Um, no barrier exemption is that we've always um, respected if an individual student cannot physically wear a mask. Um, we know some of our students have sensory issues, some of our students have special needs. Um, And so we've always provided that uh, very easily without a barrier, without needing a doctor's note. So there's no financial or logistical barrier to to receiving that. Um, So we we have heard from that public, but I think our our main message to those people is, you know, we're not trying to um, supersede our power or to just pass a bunch of motions because they're fun. Uh, What we're trying to do is take an approach that is compassionate and that, uh, serves the most vulnerable and um, you know it's one step in, in a multitude of different approaches but masking we know can help stop the spread of RSV, it stops, stops the spread of uh, the flu and of course of COVID-19 um, so we're just asking for compassion and kindness and we know if you're physically capable um, we are asking the people who are coming into our building students and staff and visitors if you're physically capable please just wear a mask um, and we're hopeful that this motion also makes it so that we can provide masks readily available, so that we have an abundance of masks, and we're making it really easy um, and very, very low barrier for anyone uh, to participate. We have less than a minute, but I want to ask you this. What does it say about the HWDSB that it's among the first in the province to recommend masking in schools again? So hopefully it means that 
you know, that our families can understand that we're trying to lead cautiously, but also strongly. Um, people will know who are our families will know that I think we were one of the only boards last spring to extend the masking mandate, um, particularly because it was being lifted after March break and we knew families would be traveling internationally or across the border. Um, and we were really concerned about a spike of COVID-19 infections right after March break um, if we lifted everything sort of quickly and, and yeah, just very fast. So um, I don't think our families will be surprised that we're the first, one of the first. Um, Ottawa, I know, had a special, um, the Ottawa Public uh, School Board had a special meeting this week to discuss the very same issue. Um, so I think school boards are looking around. We're lo- we, we've been hopeful that we would see some provincial leadership on this, some explicit lang- language. And although the, the provincial government has recommended masking indoors, so it's actually not that far out of line uh, with with what the government is saying and what our local public health is saying. But I hope that people understand uh, that we're just we're trying to err on the side of most safety for most of our populations. Maria, thanks for coming on air with us and describing what is happening with the local public board and uh, the mask recommendations. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. That is Maria Felix Miller, trustee for Ward 3 with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Also falls in line with our poll question of the day at AM 900 CHML on Twitter. You can also text me your answer at 905-645-3221. Do you expect Hamilton to follow Burlington's lead in having its employees wear masks for the next six weeks? Yes or no? Aaron tweeted it or texted in. We have the farthest left mayor in Ontario. So yes. You can text your answer to 905-645-3221. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's been a long time since we've been back. You know, our fans were, were football fans. I thought they they really tried to own the stadium tonight. They were brilliant. You know, to see that many Canadians here. And they, they walked away proud, I'm sure. Proud and feeling like we are a football nation. Canada head coach John Herdman, proud of his players and Canadian fans who attended the game yesterday. And what a historic game it was. It was 36 years in the making as Canada made their Qatar debut at the World Cup after their previous World Cup way back in 1986 did not result in any wins or goals. Still searching for a first victory and our first goal after yesterday's opening match against powerhouse Belgium, but a lot of positives to take away from yesterday's performance. Here to recap some of the highs and the lows is Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer at The Athletic, and he joins us now here on Good Morning Hamilton. Sean, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Your impression of Canada's performance yesterday, what were you expecting going in and what did you see? Well, I mean, it's tough to know what I expected. I mean, back in 1986, I was trying to remember, you know, how much recall I had. And I figured that, you know, back then, since I was nine years old, there's a, probably a pretty good chance I would have changed the channel to watch Fraggle Rock or something <laughs> else back then. It was, it was quite some time ago. But, no, I think that, you know, one, one thing that stands out is the way that Canada played that, you know, historically, and there is precedent that, you know, sometimes underdog nations, and that's what Canada is in this tournament, uh, tend to play pretty conservative. You know, park the bus is what they call it in soccer. So you can think back to, you know, many years ago, Greece at the Euros or or even Iceland, um, you know, at the, at the, you know, the World Cup. It's, it's you know, be very conservative and try and rope it up, counterpunch, right? That, you know, 
play really, really tight in your half and then wait for your opportunity and hope you capitalize on your mistake. Now, what Canada did yesterday was was really sort of upend that, didn't they? That they, they played really, really aggressive. Um, they played really fast. Um, they took risks, certainly along the back line, and you saw that in the 44th minute when, you know, when, when they allowed that goal. Um, but they played a really exciting, up-tempo, fast-moving, creative brand of soccer. So, you know, that, that really was kind of surprising. And I think that, you know, for, for anybody else, if you're on social media, you would have seen a lot of people outside of Canada also pretty surprised to see that. It was almost as if, you know, if you didn't have a clue what was going on, you'd tune in and you would think that Belgium was the team in white and Canada was the team in red. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was unbelievable to see. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some pretty recognizable names even for casual soccer fans, right? Like Eden Hazard was was on Chelsea, one of the biggest clubs in the world. They have the best goalkeeper in the world, arguably. Um, and yeah, I think that they might have been caught back on their heels by, you know, certainly Alfonso Davies, who might have broken a few ankles out there coming off that hamstring injury scare. Um, but yeah, they, they really pushed the pace. And, you know, I, I can't remember the statistic exactly, but I think the chances were something like 21 to 9 in favor of Canada. And, you know, usually when you have that many chances on goal, you score and you win. And I think there's some statistical information and data to back that up at the World Cup level. Didn't happen yesterday. Um, Alfonso Davies was stopped on his penalty in the first half and, you know, a bunch of other chances and strong saves beyond that. But, yeah, they get another shot on Sunday against Croatia. I think if anything, and we're in discussion here with Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer with The Athletic. He's also the author of Before the Lights Go Out. You can check it uh, online on Amazon and your favorite bookstore. Uh, by the way, you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. If anything, this is a massive confidence boost for Canada because not only can they play with the likes of Belgium, but now they're looking at Croatia and Morocco and thinking, we can get some points here. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we have to talk about odds makers since it seems like sports betting's everywhere. Um, but the odds makers still don't favor Canada to win against Croatia. It's still, I think, a, what, a 20 to 34 percent chance of victory. There's, there's almost as great a chance that they'll earn a tie. Um, so they're still not favored by any stretch. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about, you know, what are the goals? Is the goal to get out of the group stage? Is the goal to score the first goal in Canadian men's uh, history at the World Cup? Um, you know, it really does depend on, on where you want to set those. But, but yeah, I mean, obviously they have to get some points out of these last two games and if they want to hope to advance out of the group stage. Um, but, yeah, they're still not favored against Croatia. But I think what, what, the, you know, what the loss to Belgium did show is that, yeah, like this isn't, this isn't the Canada of 1986 necessarily. This is, this is Canada that has, you know, some world-class skill. Um, some speed, and certainly with John Herdman, I think he's got a proven track record at the international level, albeit with you know historic talent like Christine Sinclair. Um, but that you know this might be a team that might be a bit more competitive than folks outside or maybe even inside the country thought. Well, we have uh, learned one thing, that Canada certainly belongs in this tournament. It's going to be exciting to see them uh, versus Croatia on Sunday and then December 1st against Morocco. Sean, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. That is Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer of The Athletic, also the author of Before the Lights Go Out. Check it out in your favorite bookstore, either online or physically. Two massive moments in the game. Early on, ninth minute, Alfonso Davies' penalty kick, and Thibaut Courtois, one of the best goalies on the planet, makes a great save. What a moment for the 22-year-old Canadian.
at the top stage of soccer to have that opportunity. Man, if he had converted that, it would have been a much different game. And Mishi Batswai, you know, he scores in the 44th minute. It was one mental lapse that the Canadian defenders made, and it changed the game on a dime. Well, Canada Croatia should be fun Sunday, December 1 against Morocco. I, I think there is points to be had here. I think they tie Croatia and they beat Morocco. That's the prediction. We shall see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you live in Niagara region, you may just have a piece of space. Yeah, outer space in your yard. A meteorite lit up the sky between Hamilton and Toronto early Saturday morning. It was just about 3.30 in the morning. Uh, before it broke up in the atmosphere and crash landed in the Niagara region. And now residents in that area are being told to search their properties for these space rocks. Peter Brown is the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Science in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Western University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about this meteorite? Well, the the meteorite itself is uh, particularly unusual because unlike most other meteors, this one was actually seen by telescopes outside of the atmosphere three hours before it hit southern Ontario. So we actually have a view of what it was like in space. And that's that's unique. That really has not happened uh, very often in the past. So we're really excited to get a get hold of a piece of this rock. Was this also a big meteorite? Can be classified as a large piece of space rock? Uh, actually, it's just the opposite. It's actually the smallest asteroid that's ever been detected by uh, a telescope outside the atmosphere. It's still pretty good size, though. It's uh, probably about beach ball size when it was hitting the atmosphere. And we think there's kilo to maybe tens of kilo sized pieces that made it to the ground somewhere north of St. Catharines. So what should people in Niagara region be looking for? Yeah, so we think these meteorites uh, will be heavier than normal rocks. So if you pick them up, they'll feel denser. They'll be black on the outside. Uh, they'll also probably be magnetic. So if you have a magnet and you know, touch the rock, it should should stick to it. It also will look a little bit out of place, particularly if it's one of the bigger pieces north of St. Catharines. Uh, it may have dug a little bit of a hole into the ground, which gives you an idea of how fast it was falling when it uh, hit the earth. And what would the biggest piece kind of be, like a baseball size? Well, if if the biggest piece turns out to be sort of in the 10 kilo range, that's more like a soccer ball. It's actually a mm-hmm. pretty good sized piece. And something that big would actually have dug a pretty decent sized hole in the ground. Uh, the piece itself might be uh, a foot below the ground inside a, a pit. And we can touch this thing? We can pick it up with our bare hands? Absolutely. It's completely safe. Uh, There's no danger at all. The meteorites are as safe as any other earth rock. Uh, They're just extremely, extremely valuable from a scientific standpoint. Peter Brown is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Brown is the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Science in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Western University. And we're talking about this meteorite that lit up the sky early Saturday morning and crash-landed in the Niagara region. It's it's kind of odd to think that, you know, this being the most populated place in Canada, that we haven't received reports of, hey, I had some space rock crash through my house. Um, is, that, is that odd or is that uh, just commonplace? Well, actually, in this case, most of the material that made it to the ground, we think, actually ended up in Lake Ontario. So in this sense, it, maybe it's not too surprising that we, we don't have a lot of reports of, you know, objects having been hit. 
we think that just to the east of Grimsby, lots of smaller objects, so so meteorites that might be, you know, the size of a walnut or a peanut even, may have made it to the ground. Uh, and there's only a few big pieces that would have been to the north of St. Catherine. So it's probably just a uh, an odds game that, you know, the, the odds of one or two pieces hitting something obvious aren't that great, but we hope someone will notice it. What should residents do if they find a piece of this meteorite? I know you and many others want to get their hands on it. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of science interest in this. Uh, another reason it's so important, we we track this object as it went through the atmosphere with a whole bunch of cameras that we run here at Western University. So we've seen how it breaks up in the atmosphere. We, we know from the telescope what it was like in space. So finding that rock is sort of the last piece of this sort of cosmic drama from, from Saturday night. So if you do find something that you think might be a meteorite, we're asking people to contact or bring it to the Royal Ontario Museum. They're going to act as sort of the the, the filter house for, for people bringing in meteorites and they'll be able to help them uh, determine if it's the real thing or not. And so what do you do with it? What kind of research is done into these little rocks? Yeah, so uh, even if we recover something very, very small, like a gram size or less, that'll be enough to let us be able to do analysis that tells us uh, the, the composition, the chemistry, uh, what kind of meteorite it is. There are many, many different kinds of meteorites. And and just having a small piece, we just need a little bit of material because instruments now are so sensitive and so good. Uh, that'll tell us the kind of asteroid it came from. So So lots of chemistry and um, other kinds of tests that tell us what its life history was like. Last question, and might be the most important one that people have on their minds. If someone finds a piece of this meteorite and they hand it over, do they get it back? Yes, absolutely. So just to be clear, uh, meteorites are owned by whosoever property they land on. So if they land on your property, it's yours, uh, full stop. And you can you can loan it, you can do whatever you like. Uh, if you decide you want to, for example, sell it, the one catch is in Canada, meteorites are considered cultural property, which means you can sell it within Canada, but you can't export it outside the country without a permit. Uh, but absolutely, from, from a science standpoint, we'd, we'd love to look at it. And uh, of course, we'd get it back to you because it's yours. Great to know. Peter, really appreciate your time and uh, happy hunting. Hopefully some uh, product gets uh, in, in, in front of you. Thanks very much. Peter Brown is the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Science in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Western University. Go out and look for those space rocks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's jump into the world of politics now, where the deadline to enter the race to become the next leader of the NDP is coming up soon, December 5th, in fact. But at this point, we're in late November now, there's only one candidate Jean-Vivre Tellier is a professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa and joins us once again here on Good Morning Hamilton. Jean-Vivre, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning, Rich. Merritt Stiles is the only candidate. What does that say about where the Ontario NDP is? Uh, you know what? I'm very puzzled because uh, on paper, the NDP is in good standing. I mean, uh, it, it's a solid organization. Uh, it did perform well in the last election, although not maybe up to the point they wanted. And that uh, to have only one candidate at that time, uh, not talking too much about the leader leadership race also. Uh, it's not a topic that comes very often in the, in the news. Um, not seeing other candidate, potential candidate that are publicly saying, well, yes, I am interested, but uh, I'm still trying to set up my team or that kind of thing. Um, it's really a puzzle for me. So uh, why is it 
why do we see a lack of what it seems to be a lack of interest? Um, is it because uh, the, 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 the focus is elsewhere? Uh, is it because we see more problems than opportunities uh, with that party? Um, I still to try to figure out what's happening because uh, if I was somebody that wanted to enter politics and I would, if I was a bit leaning to the left, uh, that would surely be a, a vehicle, a mean for me to 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 try to do something in, 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 on the political scene. So um, I, I'm still scratching my head, as you can see, and uh, it's hard to explain that. There are uh, a few people who say that they're mulling it over. They're considering a bid at the leadership. Sol Mamakwa would be one. Chris Glover, Wayne Gates, who's uh, nearby Niagara here. The deadline, though, is December 5th. There's really not a time to drum up support and fundraising and all that that goes with a leadership bid. Yes, and as you said, they are modeling and modeling. They should be do something else. <laughs> it should be at a, a higher gear, um, and so they should start uh, speaking publicly, trying to bring attention, interest into what their ideas and what they want to do. Also, one thing that is missing is that it are people outside from the current caucus. And so uh, you could have other leaders elsewhere uh, that would also be interested. I, I think about unions, for instance, uh, that could be interested in, in, in seeking the leadership uh, of the party, and we don't see those names either. Uh, so yes, uh, time is running uh, out up to a point. Um, then we could ask the question, uh, did that race came too soon? Should we have wait a bit longer, maybe a year? Um, are the conditions to enter the race also too stringent in the sense that you have to come up with some signature with an amount of money? But when you look at that, I don't think so. The the, the potential candidates were giving a, a good six months uh, to 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 set up their their campaign. Um, the threshold to enter the race is not very that high. I mean, uh, we asked fifty five thousand dollars for each candidate to bring. Uh, we are far from the two hundred thousand that the federal conservative asked during the last uh, race uh, leadership race. So then again, um, the only conclusion I could see for the moment is a, a big lack of interest and that still is um, surprising for me and it is puzzling so what does it say about the NDP uh, do we think that it's a party that has not a, a lot of interest um, and, and cannot do much uh, I'm not sure about that but yes that is, that is very strange for me to see that lack of interest absolutely we're chatting with professor at the University of Ottawa Jean-Vive Tellier here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML Merritt Stiles has said that there has to be some changes going forward, but she also wants to build on the achievements of former leader Andrea Horvath, who's now the mayor here in Hamilton. What changes do you think are going to be made or should be made with the Ontario NDP? Oh, there's a lot of changes. And uh, yes, uh, let's call them opportunities. Okay. But uh, yes, there are a lot of change because now, um, because of the pandemic we had just uh, witnesses, uh, there is this idea of rethinking what is the state what are modern public uh, current states uh, especially the Ontarian state the Ontarian government and what is 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 role in society and so we have one proposition proposition that comes from Doug Ford and says uh, well uh, the states should be minimal and so this is a really right wing position and then there's a other there are other options more to the left and so the NDP has certainly a role to offer a new proposition and bring new 
ideas um, about what is the modern uh, role or function of government. So just think about healthcare. I mean, that's the major issue now. Uh, what do we want as a healthcare system? What are the, the 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 changes that we could do to 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 modify the the the, the offer of services? Um, what is the relationship between uh, the government and uh, healthcare uh, healthcare giver giver? Um, and healthcare provider, I mean, um, and, and that those similar ideas. And so I'm talking about healthcare, but you could think about other field like, uh, the economy, uh, which is also on people's mind. And so what would be a new proposition about, uh, changing how the state view its implication or its intervention in the field of, of the economy and, and more specifically inflation? So, uh, there are many, as I said, opportunities, but, uh, we don't discuss them currently. And so uh, the NDP would certainly have a, a role to do so. Well, we got a couple of weeks to see if there is another individual who will enter the race right now. It's Merritt Styles' race to win or to lose. If someone does enter, we'll, we'll be watching closely. Jean-Vievre, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. That is Jean-Vievre Tellier, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. And I, w- I would see the Merritt Styles. I mean, if it's a coronation, you can look at it one way and say, well, I mean, she's so good. I mean, this is the perfect person for the party. Then, yeah, I mean, no one no one even dared challenge her because this is the way we want to go. On the flip side, you know, critics will say, you know, there, there isn't that many uh, would-be leaders in this party. You know, you shouldn't vote for them because, yeah, you know, they couldn't even stage a leadership race to get more voices to the table, more opinions on the table. So the, the double-edged sword coming up here for the NDP. I'm hoping or at least see one other person go in so we can see a race. That's always exciting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Want to shine a spotlight on what is a really important program that raises money for kidney research. You may or may not know that one in 10 people in this country have kidney disease. That's a, that's a pretty high number. Uh, 3,200 people right now are waiting for a kidney transplant. And the wait is not that quick. It averages about three years, nine months. So really, nearly four years. That's a long time to wait for a kidney that an individual would desperately need. And so Kidney Car, officially the Ontario Kidney Car Program, is one of those fundraising efforts that the Kidney Foundation of Canada really relies on to help um, pile up all this cash to, to research kidney disease. And so I participated in this program, oh, it would have been 2008. 2008 at an old Pontiac Grand Am. It was red, it was flashy, it was sporty, it was, it was a nice vehicle. I had it for, uh, I had it for 12 years. I thought, you know what? The life cycle has come to an end. Yes, I can fix the brakes. Yeah, I can repair the radiator, which had cracked. Yeah, I can do this, that, and the other thing. It would be, it cost a lot of money. I thought, you know what? Let's dive into a newer vehicle and bingo, bango, bongo, win-win situation, donate the car to Kidney Car. And it was so easy to do so. I just went on the website, kidneycar.ca, plugged in all the details and said, hey, pick up my car. It's free for you. Well, it wasn't actually free. I mean, they get it for free, but I got something in return. And that was a tax receipt because it was a charitable donation. So if you have an old car lying around or a car that you no longer use or want and you want to do something 
especially nice with it, donate it to Kidney Car because you could get a tax receipt for this year. And let's not forget, the year's almost over, so now is probably the time to act. A tax receipt of at least $700. Now, when I did it back in 2008, the minimum was 250 So, I mean, in the last well, 14 years now, that has really jumped up to a minimum of 700 And if you have a newer vehicle, you know, much different than what I was presenting at the time, you know, an old beat-up clunker, if you have a newer vehicle, they'll give you so much more. Uh, didn't know this that the Kidney Foundation of Canada was founded in 1964. It's been around for a long, long time, and it's done some remarkable work raising millions of dollars for kidney research, patient services, public education. That awareness campaign is a big part of, uh, you know, providing information to the public to say we really need to tackle this issue. And for those one in ten Canadians who have the disease, it is it impacts their lives. From top to bottom, either you're always thinking about it or there are functions that, you know, I don't want to get too graphic that, you know, you really have to keep an eye on. So if you have an old clunker or if you have any kind of vehicle that is in the unwanted category, you want to unload it, uh, contact Kidney Car today, kidneycar.ca or call them at 1-866, this is toll free, 1-866-788-2277, 1-866-788-2277. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.